Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, May 7th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. New models suggest the death toll from COVID-19 here in the U.S. could hit 600,000 by June, while Pfizer petitions for full FDA approval of its coronavirus vaccine. A new employment report now in for the month of April, the economy adding far fewer jobs than expected, as President Biden tries to sell his massive new infrastructure and jobs plan. And with the governor of Florida signing a number of new voting restrictions into law, a look at how other GOP-led states could soon follow suit. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. And we begin with late-breaking news. A federal grand jury has indicted the four former Minneapolis police officers involved in the arrest of George Floyd. They're now accused of violating the black man's constitutional rights as he was restrained, face down on the pavement and gasping for air. Indictments unsealed Friday named Derek Chauvin, Thomas Lane, Jay King and Tuo Tao. Chauvin was also charged in a second indictment stemming from the arrest and neck restraint of a 14-year-old four years ago. And Pfizer making a big move today, applying for full approval of their COVID-19 vaccine from the FDA and also requesting emergency use for kids 12 to 15. This as more people are willing to get the vaccine, a new projection show the Biden administration will get to their goal of vaccinating 70% of the population by July 4th. Lorraine Casares has all the details. Pfizer now becoming the first pharmaceutical company to request full FDA approval for its COVID-19 vaccine. The process takes six months, but Pfizer is asking for priority review. In the meantime, the pharmaceutical company continues working on quickly developing booster shots and new vaccines that target COVID-19 variants. And right now, I'm happy to say that we have uh, our process uh, is geared to do that in less than 100 days. Right now, we are already in 90 something days that we should be able, from the day we make the decision that this is a variant that we need to do something about it within uh, uh, 90 something days to be able to have a product ready. The company also applying to extend its emergency use to include children ages 12 to 15. If the FDA approves that request, it would become the first vaccine available to people in that age bracket. But not all parents are eager to vaccinate their kids. A poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation finding just 3 in 10 parents are planning to get their 12 to 15-year-olds vaccinated immediately. 25% say they will wait and see how the vaccine is working, and nearly a quarter say they will not vaccinate their children. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington predicting 185 million Americans will be vaccinated against COVID-19 by September. Their model forecasting more than 70% of Americans will have at least one shot by the end of May and 65% will be fully vaccinated by mid-June. The prediction indicating the president will reach his goal ahead of schedule. 
Some states are already there, a few getting close, but some have a long way to go. Republicans are most hesitant, but polls indicating hesitancy is falling. We've encouraged uh, particularly primary care doctors, but all, all physicians in the state to personally reach out to people that they have a relationship with and try to make the case for getting vaccinated. Yeah, I'd say immunize at least another 80 million to 100 million people. And then when next winter comes, it will just be a bump instead of a surge. So, and we can do that. And California is expected to reach herd immunity by mid-June, not only through vaccination, but also uh, via uh, natural immunity. Meanwhile, scientists at the University of Washington are predicting that the death toll worldwide of COVID-19 is more than double that's currently being reported. They're saying the estimates reach very close to 6.9 million people. And here in the U.S., that number is close to a million people and not the 561,000 the CDC is currently reporting. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that information. And joining me now is Dr. Denise Nunez. She's a pediatrician at Somos Community Care Network in New York. Thank you so much for your time, doctor. Thank you so much for the invitation. Doctor, how do you think parents will approach getting their teenagers vaccinated? Well, I think what we need to do is that, you know, we need to work in collaboration with the parents. We need to bring them to their practices. We need to speak to them and make them understand why is it so important that they need to get vaccinated. Remember that about 13% of our kids, 13.7% of our kids um, got infected with COVID. And, and most probably it's more than that because we were not able to test everybody. Definitely uh, the kids did not die as much as the adults. Um, they were not that severe. But the patients that were severe with the MIAC, which were over 3,000, were very, very sick. And all of them had to be hospitalized. So we need to make sure that the students, that these um, youth, the children understand this, and the parents most of all, because they're the ones that are making the decision, right, to bring their kids to get vaccinated. Now, according to a new poll, 26% of parents said they wanted to wait and see how the vaccine was working before vaccinating yeah. their own kids. Are you hearing yes. similar statements from Hispanic parents at your office? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I sit down with them and I just, what I do is I really try to understand why we're thinking this way. So you need to approach parent by parent. That's why it's so important, um, us doctors um, of the community, you know, like Somos Community Care under the guidance of Dr. Montalaj, we've gone out to the community and, and that trust that they have with us is very, very important. So that's why they need to come to us and ask us, what are the questions you have? Why don't you want to vaccinate your child? Um, they're thinking about side effects, you know, what's happened. But we've already vaccinated so many people and we're doing fine. So, so that's what the people need to understand. And the Pfizer has actually 100% effectiveness and very small um, side effects, a little pain, maybe a little bit of fatigue, and that's it. So, which is kind of what they, the kids receive you know, feel when they get their normal vaccines. So we just have to make sure the parents understand that. And now children now account for more than 22% of COVID cases here yes. in the U.S. That's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. But just a year ago, cases were just about 3%. What could be behind those high numbers? So remember that kids, uh, they, do, they do get infected, right? They do transmit. It's just that the severity of the cases have not been that much. And remember, numbers might be much higher than that. Remember, we have not been testing our kids. We have not been testing. You know, there's random tests done in schools, but we never started from the beginning testing. So there must be much more 
the number must be much, much more higher than that. And staying in the topic of children, are children still recovering faster than adults when they get COVID-19, doctor? I, I don't say faster recovery. They do take their time. It's the way they present. It's a touch different. It's, uh, it's more acute with the inflammation and the heart and, and all the, the symptoms they present. But the medications we've been able to give them, despite not having the respiratory component. Remember, the adults are more kind of respiratory component, that respiratory failure, that the saturations, the oxygen level is very low. The kids present more like an inflammation affecting the heart, affecting other organs. And then we give them the medications like um, steroids and, and something called IVIG, and they tend to get better um, a little bit quicker. Um, but it's because the symptoms they're presenting comparing to the adults, it's a little bit different. And doctor, do you feel optimistic about school reopenings for in-person classes that now that most people are vaccinated? Talking about adults. Um, so I, I, I feel also not only safeness, but also physically, but mental health of our kids, right? Remember our kids are suffering a lot, not only the pandemic that's going on, but mentally, changing their habitat, changing, having to do classes at home, feeling that they're not understanding the classes, that they can't even speak to their parents because their parents are going through so much. So they have their own little battle inside. So it's coming to a normality. Having hope, right, for our kids uh, is very, very important. So I'm, I'm hoping that slowly we can get back to normality so our kids can also feel that hope and feel that, you know, things are, are getting back to normal and this is going to go away, which we know it's not going to go away soon, by the way, but at least the kids have a different mentality than us. And we need to make sure that we that we um, target that area, their mental health. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Denise Nunez, pediatrician in New York City. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now to Washington, President Biden this morning sounded optimistic about the economic recovery despite a disappointing April jobs report, fewer jobs than expected. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. Today's job report is well below the estimates of many experts who believe the economy is struggling to rebound. According to the U.S. Labor Department, in April the economy added just 266 thousand jobs, which has been a surprise to many, taking into consideration that vaccine distribution increased and virus caseloads fell around the country. The April unemployment rate remained at around the same as the prior month in 6.1 percent, but economists are saying that number is misleadingly low because of how many people have dropped out of the labor force in the last year and are not counted as unemployed. Now, the pressure is on President Biden, who continues to push for major legislation that, according to him, will create millions of jobs. Today, Biden, like you said, sounded optimistic about the future. Take a listen. Today, there's more evidence that our economy is moving in the right direction. But it's clear we have a long way to go. All told, our economy has added more than 1,500,000 new jobs since I took office. That's the most number of jobs created in the first three months of any presidency in our history. Just for perspective, in these three months before I got here, the economy added about 60,000 jobs a month. 
The 266,000 jobs added in April represent a stunning drop-off from the 770,000 jobs added in March. The problem the current White House will face is that many businesses are already complaining of having a hard time recruiting workers, especially for low-wage hourly jobs, because many are making even more money by just claiming unemployment, and that benefit is not set to end until September. Meanwhile, the IRS has announced that the eighth batch of stimulus payments has gone out this week. This batch includes 1.1 million payments with a value of more than $2 billion. However, this time the IRS is including 570,000 plus ups payments for those who didn't receive the $1,400 payment from the third round of checks. But that's how their income fell in 2020 because of the pandemic. The IRS is calling those who have yet to file their taxes to take advantage of the extra funds. Remember, the deadline to submit your taxes is May 17th. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Carolina. Have a good weekend. You too, Edwin. Thank you so much for that information. As always, any other White House news, the Biden administration is revealing now how it plans to conserve 30% of U.S. land and water by 2030. The campaign called America the Beautiful is encouraging local and voluntary conservation efforts, both on public and private lands. The administration wants to form a new interagency working group to track conservation information, develop metrics for success, and measure progress. And on Capitol Hill, House Democrats are getting ready to advance a $2 billion supplemental funding bill to address U.S. capital security later this month. This despite some remaining questions and reservations amongst Republicans and even some Democrats about the spending. Lawmakers have not yet reached an agreement on what should go in the bill. They also have not agreed on how to address policy questions like what to do with fencing around the Capitol. And an attorney for one of the defendants in the U.S. Capitol breach is blaming his client's actions on what he calls foxieties. During a virtual hearing Thursday, Anthony Antonio's lawyer said Antonio lost his job at the start of the pandemic and watched Fox News constantly for the next six months. The lawyer said he developed, quote, Foxieties and Foxmania and believed that Fox News reported in what then-President Trump said about the 2020 election. Antonio is charged with five federal crimes, including violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds and destruction of government property. Antonio has yet to enter a plea. And now to Florida, the latest state where GOP governors and lawmakers are approving some restrictive voting laws. Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law a controversial voting bill, critics quickly reacting and taking the new measures to court. This as Texas is taking similar steps toward enacting voting restrictions. And Delinares has all the details. So we did Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing a bill into law that voting rights advocates say will make it harder for people to cast their ballots. He did it before a Trump fan club called Club 45, live on Trump's favorite television show, Fox and Friends. All other media not allowed behind closed doors. It was on national TV. It wasn't secret. 
The bill allows drop boxes, but with some restrictions. They must be geographically located so as to provide all voters in the county with an equal opportunity to cast a ballot. Drop boxes are now also required to be staffed with an election worker at all times. The bill also prohibits mass mailing of balloting. So right now I have what we think is the, the strongest election integrity measures in the country. I'm actually the law was immediately challenged in court by Democrat lawyer Mark Elias. Democrats slamming the Florida bill and similar efforts in other states as voter suppression. The White House reacting, calling it a step in the wrong direction. Florida is now the seventh GOP-led state to enact new voting restrictions this year, alongside Georgia, which made headlines in March. In Texas, the question occurs on passage of third reading of SB 7. Legislators approved a new state election law after a session that lasted well into Friday morning hours. The bill, as written, would make it a felony to provide a voter with an application to vote by mail if they hadn't requested one on their own. The proposal also requires that anyone who assists someone else to vote must fill out their own form explaining why the voter needs aid. It now goes back to the Senate with amendments for another vote in that chamber. Closing polling locations. They're not allowing counties to do outreach on vote by mail. They're criminalizing small mistakes. Meanwhile, in Arizona, there's a controversial audit and recount of the November election in Maricopa County. This includes nearly 2.1 million ballots cast in races for federal offices. And the Justice Department is expressing concern that this recount may be impossible violation of federal law. One issue is that ballots, voting systems and other election materials are no longer in the custody of election officials. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Vice President Kamala Harris took part in a virtual meeting with the president of Mexico this morning. Lopez Obrador pitched a three-planting jobs program in Central America that he said could lead to U.S. work visas. At the start of the call, Harris said the U.S. and Mexico must fight violence and corruption together to help diminish migration from Central America. President Joe Biden has entrusted Harris with leading efforts to cut immigration from Mexico and Central America as the administration faces an increase in people crossing into the U.S. at the southern border. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is saying unaccompanied migrant children now spend an average of around 24 hours in Border Patrol custody. That's down 75% from more than 100 hours reported in March. U.S. law permits children to remain in these jail-like border facilities for only 72 hours before being transferred into the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. And in Texas, 29 people were detained in San Antonio in a possible human smuggling operation involving an 18-wheeler. Police say they got a call about a suspicious big rig on I-10. When an officer made contact with the driver at the truck stop, people tried to escape. Authorities say up to 100 suspected undocumented immigrants were inside the truck. Authorities managed to take more than two dozen of them into custody at a nearby hotel under construction. One person was hospitalized as a precaution to be checked out for dehydration. Police are still looking for the others that were able to run away. 
Now in New York City, hundreds of protesters wearing the Colombian national football team shirt were seen waving the Colombian flag in Times Square yesterday in support of their country of Colombia, where dozens of people have died in clashes with the police as protesters opposed tax increases and inequality. They were seen holding signs denouncing the killing and the violence by the Colombian police. Meanwhile, the government of that country is now announcing that they are willing to negotiate and to get to an agreement with the committee organizing the strike. Jonathan Mejia has all the details. Yesterday morning, the Colombian government announced that it is willing to meet with representatives of the National Strike Committee. The President of the Republic is willing to receive a delegation of the Strike Committee to start working and to look at the discussions. The announcement, however, didn't prevent more looting and violence from taking place around the country. After nine days of protests and violence in Colombia, the headlines instead were about Lucas Villa, a 34-year-old man who just two days ago greeted police officers and marched peacefully in his home city of Pereira. At night, this terrifying series of gunshots rang out. It came from a car that fled the scene, and seconds later, Villa was lying on the ground motionless and bleeding. He arrived at the hospital brain dead with eight bullet wounds. I don't wish this on anyone. The strike leaders, through the president of the Central Union of Workers, set conditions for the negotiations. While the beginning of the negotiations is defined and it develops, we will continue with the national strike. And so the protest continues, with more than seven in Bogotá and dozens across the rest of the country. Reported by Yassi Bequero in Bogotá, Colombia, Jonathan Mejia, U News. And thank you for that information, Jonathan. And for more on the situation in Colombia, let's go live to Jose Miguel Vivanco. He is the America's Executive Director for Human Rights Watch. Thank you so much for your time, Jose Miguel. Thank you very much, Carolina. Now, protests in Colombia have been now going on for over a week. What is your reaction to the president's offering of a dialogue? I think it's um, actually um, a very reasonable and, um, and, um, and positive um, measure uh, taken by the government of, uh, of Colombia. Um, we have been documenting uh, abuses in, uh, and violence in Colombia during uh, over a week. Uh, a group of our researchers are on daily basis uh, evaluating uh, credible uh, complaints about uh, all sort of um, cases, uh, killings, uh, arbitrary detention, um, arbitrary detention, um, uh, brutality, um, uh, you know, misuse of, uh, um, of weapons uh, by security forces. And, uh, and I have to tell you, Carolina, conditions are getting worse and worse. It's uh, aggravating. I don't see, unless there is some sort of uh, negotiation uh, between um, uh, different sectors of uh, society in Colombia and the government, um, I, I, you know, according to our research, it shows that conditions are getting uh, actually um, um, increasingly worse. And as you have noted, at least 31 people have been killed during the protest, according to your tally at Human Rights Watch, and at least 85 have been reported missing. There are allegations that the police is behind this violence. Are there more details about this? Well, uh, look, at this stage, we have 11 cases 
uh, where um, the um, um, our research shows that um, uh, those individuals have been killed, um, uh, very likely by security forces um, uh, in the context of uh, demonstrations. We have another 25 cases of uh, people who have died in the context of, uh, of, uh, of the demonstrations, uh, but we are still uh, trying to establish the, the circumstances of the of those um, of, of those ones who uh, lost their life. Um, Carolina, I have to also emphasize that uh, we have seen increasingly level of violence by some demonstrators that are engaged in looting and uh, and vandalism. And um, so, uh, on the one side, you you know you see uh, brutality, tremendous brutality by by security forces. Uh, unfortunately, uh, on the other side, um, uh, most of those ones who are demonstrating on the streets uh, are doing peacefully. But there are some others, uh, young fellows who are engaging in um, in violence. And um, and and that's why I hope that um, um, thanks to this. Um, uh, negotiations uh, with the government, um, they could, um, uh, you know, reduce the tension uh, mm -hmm. in Colombia. And now let's talk about the underlying issues here. How has the pandemic made existing problems in Colombia, in other parts of Latin America, even worse? Well, uh, specifically in the case of Colombia, uh, most of these uh, demonstrations actually uh, uh, started in November of 2019. Um, uh, we were able to document at that time uh, during these massive demonstrations uh, uh, prior to the pandemic uh, that um, um, uh, the, uh, there were you know, massive um, um, uh, protests uh, across the country that were faced with brutality again by the, by the police. But then uh, m most of the, of the 2020 during the pandemic time, um, um, you know, there were not many demonstrations except for September. In September of last year, there were some confrontations with the police where the police ended up killing 13 people in, in Colombia, 13. And, um, and now you ask me about the pandemic. Uh, certainly the pandemic, the impact of the economic and social impact of the pandemic has aggravated exacerbated conditions in Colombia. And that's why you find today uh, so much uh, frustration and uh, against the government and, and, and uh, so many people willing to demonstrate on the, on the streets, demanding change uh, and demanding actually assistance and support, uh, economic and social support from the government. And hopefully that happens soon. Thank you so much for your time today. Jose Miguel Vivanco of Human Rights Watch, thank you. Thank you very much. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. 
And welcome back. And a Colombian teacher was named the Teacher of the Year in the U.S. It's a special milestone. Juliana Uturbe is the first Latina to receive this award since 2005 and the first teacher from Nevada to win it. Azura Alvarez has all the details. And one more. Juliana Urtube says that her passion for teaching is in her heart. She has understood the importance of education since she arrived in the United States from her native Colombia at the age of six, unable to speak English. Yesterday, her eyes couldn't believe it when she was surprised in the classroom by First Lady Joe Biden, who came to tell her that she had been chosen as the National Teacher of the Year. Cuando entró la doctora Biden, when Dr. Biden walked in, I was very excited because we have all recognized how the tone has changed. She's a teacher for special needs children at an elementary school in Las Vegas. Many of them are Latinos, and she says that speaking to them in Spanish is what allows her to connect with them. More than anything, speaking Spanish has been a connection to me with a part of who I am. I think it's sad when children lose their native languages. Juliana recognizes that what she is today is due to the sacrifice of her family, and her mother doesn't hide her emotion. I feel very proud for all of Juliana's students, for all the immigrants. It is a sample of our capacity. For Juliana, there is always a magic moment in her classroom. The children are a blessing. When they learn something new, that moment when they realize that I can do it. Once the restrictions imposed by the pandemic allow it, Juliana will go to the White House to receive her award. It's a deep honor to represent not only the teachers of this country, but our Latin community. Reported by Vilma Tarazona, this is Azul Álvarez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.